Dear listeners, this is Elizabeth Gazzetti, the author and creator of the Paperflower Consortium Universe. While I do not often give content warnings, this episode is one that speaks of historical violence towards women and children. And in the universal sense, talks about forgiveness. Let us begin. Paper Flower Consortium, Episode 19, on the importance of forgiveness. Recording by Loretta Fabranum Foy, former Lady of the Kingdom of France and current historian and librarian of the Paper Flower Consortium. Welcome back, beloved initiates and other listeners. You are listening because you wish to be a vampire. Most of you wish to be a vampire because of eternal existence at an adult age, which, frankly, you are fairly healthy and strong. Some of you are not healthy or strong and wish to know a vampire's strength over time. That is also understandable. And in this lesson, we will discuss an incredibly hard topic. The importance of forgiveness between vampires. This is a difficult topic because not all vampires have acted in moral ways. The current generation of humans has a term about this. It's called being woke. And its meaning is something a vampire experiences after their first human life. We awaken to the possibility that our actions have hurt people. Or, if not by our actions, certainly our cultures have acted in ways that we know are now hurtful. This is one of the reasons it is important for a vampire to be humble. Generations change. A word that might have once meant the best of humanity becomes the worst, or at least old-fashioned. If one wants to experience eternal existence, forgiveness of oneself, one's former culture, and even one's enemies becomes important. Humans and young vampires might not understand this yet because they haven't seen the centuries. You are not perfect. You will not be perfect. You will not always choose the correct side. There will be personal grievances and offenses between you and your coven siblings. Our coven and others. Hopefully, most will be simple misunderstandings. And I pray that is the case for all of you. However, you may claim your current goodness to heaven or wherever you believe your God dwells, But before this time of peace, vampires knew all types of human cruelty. And many of us, especially the ancients, indulged in them at one point or another. And with this comes another warning, my beloveds. You will painfully learn about holes in your knowledge. One day that knowledge will be before you and you can accept it and change or you will sue in your prejudices for eternity. You will be so buried in your weakness that no other vampire will offer you companionship or friendship. 
and you will be alone. So, if you believe that you are a good person, and if you believe you are wise, ask yourself this question. Who decided the age of adulthood, which includes marriage and sexual relationships? In just Western culture, this has changed throughout the centuries. And it has been dependent on socioeconomic status and gender. But in vampire society, the age of consent to vampirism is 25. Though initiates and enthralled humans may come to the coven younger, they find most vampires after their first century won't have sexual relations with someone younger than 25, even though that is not the law. Now, overwhelmingly, in American culture, we claim the age of 18 is the age of adulthood. But why? We know the average age of first teenage sexual activities happen younger. But I believe, because I've lived through this change before, that society chose 18 primarily because it is the end of mandatory schooling. It is the age where people are allowed in the military, allowed to work full-time. And I believe this because I existed in a time when boys went to war at age 13, though they were not often married until much later. At times, they might be. And to make this very clear, the elder vampires and I are glad we no longer send boys off to war when they are just children. We no longer marry children off to protect a family's land and titles. We are glad we have existed to see slavery abolished. We are glad women now have rights that they did not have when many of us women were human girls. We hope the world will continue to wake up and destroy the horrors that humanity, vampires, and all sentient beings have wrought or have been party to. Now, consider how strange it is that we now tell ourselves that the age of adulthood is 18, when many of us lived at an age where marriage might have been much younger. Consider Agatha and Jacob were married when Agatha was only 15 and Jacob was 20. Agatha and Jacob married their elder human daughter to a spice merchant when the girl was 15 and the boy was 18. Their son married at 17 to a girl of 16. This was common and considered good for society at that point in time. Now, Agatha and Jacob are not ashamed of their marriage or that they were married to secure a trading contract between two counties. Because the truth is, the relationship that defined marriage 500 years ago is not the relationship that defines marriage today. In fact, it was closer to a business relationship than a romance. Agatha not only consented to the marriage, she helped negotiate the terms, which included Jacob's father supplying Agatha with her own house and a small herd of cows. She thought her soldier husband was quite dashing, but it wouldn't have mattered to her if he had not been. She was interested in running her own manor and herds. And Jacob thought his bride was thrifty and had good sense, which was much more important than love back when they were married. Love, respect, and trust grew between these two people. Do we judge what happened over 500 years ago? Well, initiates might. 
However, then you exist for a century or two and things change. And some things which you have done will be, at best, obsolete. Jacob thought he was being true to Agatha as he only had sex with other officers and occasionally his laundress while at war. The officer's laundress would be obviously a questionable relationship today, but at the time he believed he was offering her an opportunity for greater comforts and protection than she had. She also had relations with several other officers, and when she became pregnant, the old term son of a gun would have been applicable, though this was before the widespread use of guns, so I suppose a better term would be son of the sword. Regardless, Jacob paid for the midwife and child's apprenticeship, though there was no guarantee that he fathered the child. It was irrelevant. He was a commanding officer and a nobleman. It was his duty to ensure the laundress's care. At the time, there was nothing untoward about it. Now, obviously, we only have Jacob's word on this, but he believes, and knowing what I know about my vampire father, I believe him, that she willingly accepted his advances and the other officers, because the world was terrible, and this offered her comforts that she would not have otherwise. Now, Pascaline and I were both ladies of the French court. And though chasteness was the stated expectation of a lady, in fact, the true expectation was discretion. Our virtue was absolutely for sale to the royal family. Otherwise, it was for our husband's. Before Charles, before I was even a vampire, I was betrothed, and I had always planned on giving myself to the king. It would have brought favors to the marriage that it might not have had otherwise. Though, honestly, that was my goal, because I felt it was better to be a mistress to a king than a footstool to a lesser man. That does not change the fact I believed I was a woman at 16, and I was willing to sell my virtue to the king, a man in his fifties. My human father would have been thrilled. My betrothed would have been thrilled. It was my vampire father who told me any decision in such matters were mine, not his. Not the family's. So that's some of the questionable activities that the elder vampires of this coven have been part of. We may want to think we know the truth, we may want to justify everything, but deep in our hearts we all hold regrets of those we have hurt, and we must continue to do so. It is the only way we grow. So here we are, and I will ask a question that people do not want asked. And yet, it is a question that most of you must have asked in your minds already. But what about the atrocities? How long did it take Agatha to forgive the man who threatened to rape her and then who attempted to bring her to final death after she bested him? And in that same vein, how long did it take Gaius to forgive the woman who killed his closest companion and helped his concubines usurp his lands and titles? How long? It took Gaius and Agatha approximately two centuries to forgive each other for the crimes which they'd committed upon each other. I will not and cannot speak for Gaius, but he claimed he always had respect for Agatha because she bested him twice. 
but I will speak for Agatha because I have her words. She hated him, and she hated that Jacob did not. That Jacob had forgiven Gaius after he put a sword through his chest. Jacob claimed all of Gaius's actions were atrocities of war, and as a soldier, Jacob had to forgive him. And for two centuries, it did not matter. Jacob and Agatha knew Gaius was in Prussia and working for the Prussian king, and several kings after that one. Jacob was working for the French king, and he and Agatha lived in a quiet corner of France. In the 17th century, we had an idiom about how adversity makes strange bedfellows. I am not sure if you still say that, but hopefully you understand the truth of the idiom. And in that, you understand the truth of Gaius and Agatha's relationship. Agatha never wanted to forgive Gaius, and she did not forgive Gaius in the way people sometimes mean it. She does not forget, but she saw the wisdom in our current association with them. And that is why she has been our leader for so many centuries. That being said, she rarely deals directly with Gaius, but she has pushed her pain and loathing deep into herself so her beloved Jacob may deal directly with Gaius. So let us go back to the 17th century. In 1687, Agatha, Jacob, Pascaline, and I were in Versailles, where we met Gaius and his entourage, which at that point included Charles. For those of you who are unaware, Charles was captured in the Franco-Dutch War, but his gentle birth and training meant he was taken as a prisoner of war rather than killed on sight. He was taken to a work camp which was run by the Prussian vampires, Gaius and his current firstborn, Gunter Bach. Charles hated them, but they brought him back to France because another war was brewing, and Gaius could see the end result of that war would not be good. This is why he sought out Jacob. Even so, Agatha was not ready to forgive him. And she was only able to forgive him for his kindness to me and Charles. Now, Versailles was so beautiful. And when you were in the backdrop of Versailles, it is hard to imagine the dirtiness of Paris. Even though it smelled to high heaven because there were so many people crowded into such a small place. It was also quite noisy. And amid this hustle and bustle, you might think I would be safe surrounded by the soldiers of Versailles, but in truth there were many temptations to me. And not all gentlemen born by blood are true gentlemen. And the days when there were the most danger were the days the king went hunting. I was sitting at the feet of the Fountain of Apollo when a man, whom I did not know, approached me. This fountain is one of my favorite places to read. The statue of the Golden God bursts forth from the water, and observing the statue makes one feel like you might fly. And at first, I admit, I was charmed by this man's smooth tongue telling me I looked as beautiful as golden sunlight. But then he dared touch me, though we had never been formally introduced, and I knew he was an imposter. 
or he was a man who may have been a gentleman by birth, but thought I was for him. Many men did assume that in those days. And though certainly I knew of sexual relations, I did not know what the end result this man thought he would get from me, but it wasn't of the pleasant sort. Indeed, he loomed over me, and his gentle words of love quickly became whispers of a different type. And I backed away from the man and excused myself with a curtsy and the excuse that I must meet my father for dinner. And I hurried towards the north wing of the castle to where my family slept. Fear quickened my steps. The gravel path seemed longer than before, and I looked for another woman or a group of people who might offer some protection. But there was no one who was an ally. I believe I remember people actually laughing at my distress. I didn't dare scream or cry out because that was simply not done. I was closer to the castle's main wing, but I only knew a few people there and no one I felt I could ask for help. As I had said, I had met Charles once, and certainly I liked him right away, but this was long before Charles had asked Jacob if he might court me. The idea I might throw myself at him was simply not something a lady of the court would do. And Agatha hated Gaius. I did not trust him. Somehow I got lost in the garden, and before me was the dark and horrid grove where the king went hunting. But the king for all his fovels, was gallant towards women, and if I fell upon his hunting party, I would be protected. And so I ran into the grove. While it felt like I was chased for hours, I am sure it was simply minutes which passed, because time slows so much when one is frightened. I felt I had to keep moving, because if I stopped, this man would be upon me. Branches and underbrush grew thicker, reaching out and pulling on my heavy court dress. I could barely see a few feet ahead of me, and I sensed the darkness closing in. Sweat and face paint stung my eyes, and it felt impossible to know what would be waiting, but suddenly I realized that this man might be driving me to something. And then I felt something undead. And for a moment, I believed I saw Apollo in the flesh, and with him a black horse with glowing eyes and fangs. I did not faint, and I am proud of that. But my knees were trembling, and I clung to a tree. <laughs> because I had not met yet Gaius's name firstborn, Gunter Bach. Gunter looked as if he wanted to consume me, for he was a vampire at a time which we did not train to control bloodlust. Yet, he made no move against me. He smiled and exposed his fangs, and said Charles wasn't lying. I had no idea what that meant. And I said that my father, Jacob, would be looking for me. Gunter bowed at me, and Nix lowered his head. And Gunter said, and my father told me to watch over you. Come, Lady Loretta, you should not see this. And Nix walked past us very slowly towards my pursuer. I did not look, but the lech screamed as Nix ripped into his throat. 
and he screamed for a long time after because Nyx likes his food warm and alive. And I was terrified, but Gunther just brought me to Gaius. And this may be hard to explain, but Gaius's Roman attitudes were hidden under the most genteel of Prussian attitudes. He was quite gallant. His French was not good, but Charles did translate for him. At any rate, he fed me a fine dinner, as Charles at that point also needed human food. And when Nix returned, he tried to push sweets upon me, as, in his words, I was still so young. And deep in my heart, there is part of me which wondered if, if this scene had been staged for Agatha and Jacob's benefit. And certainly my vampire parents considered the same. We cannot know. Gaius always does what he thinks is right. In any case, Charles was innocent of such knowledge. And Gunther told me only that Gaius told him what he needed to know and little else. What we do know is this. Gaius needed Jacob as another general to lead undead troops into battle several times over the next century. He needed Pascaline. He needed her beauty as well as her viciousness. And he used them both. Right or wrong, France and her allies depended upon Gaius's legion. And at that point in time, we depended upon France. And of course, this association with our bloodline progenitor gave us the information that would prepare us to leave France before the guillotine began its dreadful work. Due to this episode's content, no company of the Paperfly Consortium wanted to sponsor this episode. So Gaius did. Are you a person of questionable morals? Have you seen a lifetime of battles and want more? Do you want to become a vampire without all the moral posturing of the official covens, such as the Paper Flower Consortium? Contact Gaius's Legion. It's similar to Norma's cleaning service, just on an international scale. And I have an immediate opening. Excellent opportunity for two young or otherwise ill-fated vampires with an innate gentleness towards animals. Nix is quite lonely and needs someone to ride him while I'm out of town. You will be responsible for his care, feeding, and grooming. Nix loves young innocence. I think he may be a unicorn in disguise. Or perhaps the myths of unicorns were always just about vampire horses. You will have my full protection. The council ignores me, as it is wise to do so. If someone hurts you or touches you without your permission, Nix will eat them for you. And I will always have your back, because I love Nix. My word is my bond, and Norma can attest to my trustworthiness in such matters. And now time for questions. So, Lady Loretta, if I do something wrong and discover it later, how do I deal with it? How do I deal with the guilt? The same way people deal with anything. They make amends, including at times by leaving the hurt party alone. They confess to their spiritual advisor and their god if they have one. Perhaps they give money to charities that work to combat whatever wrong they did. You must find your own path to forgiveness. Lady Loretta, what if we see bad change today? That is, how do we stop the world from falling backwards? My beloved, 
Unfortunately, there is no way to stop the world from falling backwards that doesn't require direct action and killing on our part. We exist apart from humanities, except the humans who decide to join us and live as we do. We exist in an open secret with our governments because we do not directly get involved anymore. Now, we may still write letters and sign petitions, and as registered voters, we ought to support candidates who we believe who will protect our world. We may even choose to make protests. But understand that if you are caught in jail, you may be immolated. Indeed, if Pascaline and I were not rich white women, we would have been emulated back in 1911. So that's all there is tonight. Next time, we will speak of certain books. So good day, beloved initiates, and sleep the sleep of the dead. The Paper Flower Consortium podcast was written and performed by Elizabeth Gazzetti. For more information about the show, please visit www.patreon.com slash paperflarconsortium. And while you're there, if you have a question for Lady Loretta, send her a message or email her at info at paperflarconsortium.com. If you want to support the show, please like and share this episode or consider donating either one time or through the Patreon. We really appreciate it. Sound effects were created by Elizabeth Gazzetti or found at Free Sound Project. Royalty-free versions of the sounds of horses were found at Storyblocks. Full credits in the show notes. The intro and outro music was written by Evan Witt, and you can learn more about his music at www.wittynotes.com. Thank you for listening.